Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, uh, December 10th, uh, 2022. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition uh, of our program. Later on, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire reports. We'll have dispatches on the emergence of the Kingdom of Morocco as a contender in the World Cup semifinal games taking place in Doha, Qatar. Legendary Congolese and Pan-African artist uh, Elizabeth Mudekai, uh, properly known as Shala Moana, has joined the ancestors. We'll have details on that as well. Ethiopia is reporting that power has been restored in the Tigray province after two years of conflict. And South Africa experienced flash flooding in the Hautang region earlier today. In the second hour, we listened to a briefing from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, on the status of public health on the continent. Later, we look at the source of corruption on the African continent and how it can be resolved. Finally, we pay tribute to soul singer Otis Redding on the 55th anniversary of his untimely death in December of 1967. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We're going to take our musical interlude uh, with uh, Shala Moana, uh, who just... uh, we found out uh, early this morning he had joined the ancestors uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Going to listen to a release uh, from 1985. This is the legendary Shala Moana. <laughs>
Saturday, December 10th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and uh, we're paying tribute uh, to uh, Shala Moana, uh, who uh, earlier today uh, joined the ancestors. Shala Moana, uh, one of the legendary, uh, one of the most legendary uh, Congolese and Pan-African artists uh, who uh, recorded uh, numerous uh, albums, uh, untold numbers of uh, performances uh, and made uh, overall contributions uh, to African culture uh, from uh, the 1980s uh, all the way into this uh, present period and will continue to make contributions uh, posthumously. Let's listen to some uh, additional music uh, from uh, Shala uh, Moana.
the music of the legendary Shala Moana, uh, who earlier today made her transition at the age of uh, 64 in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And uh, that was uh, music, a selection of music uh, from Shala Moana from the 1980s. And uh, Shala Moana being one of the great uh, legendary women uh, vocalists to emerge uh, during the 1980s in the Democratic Republic of Congo, then known as Zaire. And, of course, uh, she was instrumental in paving the way for so many other uh, well-known women uh, vocalists, uh, such as Mbili Bell, and Faye Tess, Mijir 30, Mpongo Love, and many others. And uh, we'll have uh, more information on uh, the transition of Shala Moana of the Democratic Republic of Congo later on in our Pan-African Newswire segment. And we want to move into the uh, Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal, Worldwide Radio Broadcast. And, uh, of course, uh, groundbreaking developments uh, earlier today as Kylian Mbappe and France uh, made it back to the semifinals of the World Cup uh, earlier today uh, by beating England 2-1. to one. Oliver Girard uh, scored in the 78th minute at the Albat Stadium to keep France on course to become the first team since Brazil in 1962 to win back-to-back World Cups. England striker Harry Kane uh, had a chance to even the score late in the match, but he sent a penalty attempt over the bar. It was his second spot kick of the match. Uh, he earlier scored to make it 1-1 after Arlene Chouminy uh, had given France the lead. Uh, France will next face Morocco, the North African kingdom, in the semifinals uh, coming up on Wednesday. The Moroccans became the first African team to reach the semifinals at the World Cup uh, by beating Portugal 1-0. Now, uh, the coach uh, for Morocco uh, says that uh, we want to fly Africa's flag high, just like Senegal, Ghana, Cameroon. We are here to represent Africa. Uh, Morocco players celebrate uh, by uh, tossing the head coach, uh, Wiliad Regragui, into the air at the end of the World Cup Group F soccer match between Canada and Morocco at the Al Tumama Stadium in Doha, Qatar, that happened on December the 1st. Now, Morocco are the last African side standing. On December the 6th, the Morocco national football team made history after defeating Spain and claiming a spot in the quarterfinals in Qatar. The victory made Morocco the fourth African team to get into the World Cup quarterfinals after Cameroon in 1990, Senegal in 2002, and Ghana in 2010. One more win against Portugal on Saturday uh, would make Morocco the first team to reach the semifinals, surpassing the 1990 Cameroon side, Senegal in 2002, and Ghana in 2010 vintage. Uh, with this achievement across social media, people have hailed Morocco as an African victory. After the exit of Tunisia, Cameroon, and Ghana, uh, people in Africa decided to cheer on Morocco's football team. And now Morocco's head coach, Walid Rikwagui, uh, believes that African teams have already shown their potential and stand a chance of winning the competition 
in the future. And, of course, uh, Morocco's uh, victory today uh, will send them on uh, to uh, the semifinals. And as we have been uh, discussing earlier, uh, the legendary uh, Congolese musician Elizabeth Mwedike, uh popularly known uh, by her name uh, Shala Moana, has died. Her companion and producer Claude Mashala uh, introduced this uh, sad news uh, earlier uh, this morning on Saturday, December the 10th of 2020. <clears throat> Shala Moana was the second of 10 siblings. She was born to Amadeus Moy Kai, a soldier, and Alphonsine Bambiwa Tumba uh, on uh, March 13th of 1958 in the Lubumbashi province in the Democratic Republic of Congo. She was 64 years old uh, when she passed away this morning. Um, in the wee hours of this morning, the good Lord has decided to take over the national Mamu. May the good and God be glorified for all the good times she has put on. So she has put us on this earth. Uh, goodbye, my mamu. That was Mashala. He posted that on Facebook this morning. The Caribou Younger hit singer uh, gained immense popularity across the African continent from the 1980s uh, for her provocative uh, Mutasha dance that prompted the freedom of the, that promoted the freedom and prompted the freedom of the African woman's physique. Uh, exercising no limits, Shalomuana would thrust the head of men uh, towards her uh, during her performances in her early days. While Mashala did not share the details of her death, uh, Shalomuana had been battling with illnesses after reportedly suffering a mild stroke two years ago for which she was hospitalized. At the time of her death, she had been hospitalized in Kinshasa, the capital of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And, of course, um, Shala Moana was um, not only an artist, but she was heavily involved in politics. She had been a supporter of many progressive and revolutionary causes in Africa. She had even been a member of uh, parliament in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The famous Congolese singer and dancer Shala Moana has died at the age of 64. And as we mentioned earlier, uh, her producer and companion, Claude Mashala, uh, made the announcement earlier this morning. And Shala Moana is considered the queen of Utashi, a traditional music and dance from her native Kasai region. She was famous for several songs such as Kibu Yangu, Malu, and Shianza. Uh, she had toured widely overseas. She had won several awards on the national, continental, and global scene and had recorded over 20 albums. Her music also appeared in the soundtrack of the popular 1987 Congolese musical film La Via Belle and Aya of Yap City. Moana, uh, whose real name was Elizabeth Shala Moana Mwadike, was oft, also often affectionately called Mamu National, uh, which means the nation's mother for her vocal defense of the rights of women and children in the Congolese parliament. Congolese people online have been mourning her death, including former presidential candidate Seth Kikuni, who thanked her for her work and, quote, great contributions to the Congolese culture, unquote. In June of 2020, she was rumored to have died, but was instead hospitalized after a stroke. She was known to be a supporter of the Democratic Republic of Congo's ex-president, Joseph Kabila, and his party, the People's Party for Reconstruction and Democracy. 
She was arrested in 2020 uh, by President Felix Chastiquetes government reportedly for her song in gratitude which was believed to be critical of an unnamed leader and however she was released uh, within uh, 24 hours uh, we'll have uh, more information on uh, the passing of Shala Moana in upcoming uh, episodes of the Pan-African Journal in uh, the we just want to remind our listeners that you're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, Abayomi Azikawe. In Ethiopia, the Ethiopian government uh, just on Tuesday said that Mikkeli, that the electrical power uh, line, which was disconnected with the national power grid due to the war, is now reconnected. Moses Makanin, Ethiopian Electric Power Communications Directory, reportedly told the Ethiopian news agency, the power line was connected after the 230-kilo-volt power extension between Almata and Mahoney completed as part of restoring electric power to the region. Northeast region, it is EEP, a power distribution designation, apparently coordinated power station and power line maintenance technicians from all reasons, it was said. The work is said to hasten the work to restore the electric power in the entire Tigray region. And finally, heavy rains uh, during Thursday and Friday morning have provoked flash floods in parts of Hauteng province in the Republic of South Africa. In La Naisi, uh, a suburb south of Soweto, residents quickly mobilized to respond to cries for help. The rise in water levels left some residents with no choice but to abandon their homes. Many residents, mostly elderly people, had to be rescued from the rising waters by members of the community. Paramedics were on site to help any victims. Some local inhabitants criticized the local authorities, saying their absence showed a lack of leadership. And uh, with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998 and has since published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and Global Affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, we'll take a musical interlude. Uh, We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
Classic uh, rhythm and blues uh, track, Are You Lonely uh, For Me, Baby? And uh, we are, of course, as well, commemorating the 55th anniversary of the untimely death of uh, Otis Redding in 1967 in a plane crash uh, outside of Madison, Wisconsin. And we'll have um, a segment on Otis Redding later on in this edition of the Pan African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. Right now, we want to move into our briefing uh, from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, discussing the status of public health on the African continent. Uh, Let's listen in. transfer to Friday uh, due to uh, the low of work that we have, but good, we are all here again, and the director of Africa CDC, that's the acting director, Dr. Ahmed Okwe Oma is here to brief us, 
as usual, the director will be providing updates on, one, the COVID-19 situation on the continent as well where the pandemic continues, and then other health emergencies, outbreaks that are happening, including the Ebola outbreak in uh, Rwanda, uh, sorry, Uganda. So then there will, there will also be a special focus on the CPSIA uh, event, 2022 event as to kick off just this weekend in Kigali, Rwanda. Uh, there will be a special focus on how far the preparations are and what do we expect uh, in the coming week. So not to take off much of our time, let me bring in our guest, uh, not, sorry, our host, the Acting Director of Africa CDC, Dr. Ahmed Okwe-Ouman. Uh, Director, it's over to you for your briefing. Thank you. Thank you, Nick, and uh, good morning, good afternoon, uh, good evening, wherever you're joining us from. Um, so for today, I would like to cover six things. Um, five public health events of uh, concern on the continent, and then the international conference uh, on public health in Africa that starts uh, this weekend. The five uh, public health events of um, uh, significant concern um, are COVID, um, the Ebola outbreak in Uganda, um, the multi-country uh, monkeypox outbreak, the multi-country cholera outbreak, and Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever uh, also uh, in Uganda. But let's start with um, the, the COVID uh, situation um, uh, on the continent. So, um, and, and today we'll make it a bit of a summary so that we can have time to discuss a little bit of, uh, of uh, the others as well. Um, to date, we had 12.1 uh, million of uh, the number of cases documented. Um, we are at 95% um, recovery, that is 11.4 million. And unfortunately, we are at uh, 256,223 deaths which is a case fatality rate of 2.1%, and we still make up about 4.1% of the global deaths due to uh, COVID. Um, I'll skip the one-week trend, and I will focus on the four-week trend, because this gives us um, a better feel of how uh, the pandemic is evolving, particularly now that we are preparing for um, uh, the holiday break in most parts um, of the continent. When we look at um, uh, the four weeks before today, we see that there is an overall average increase of 8% in the number of new cases that are being reported. 8% average increase over the last four weeks. And this is significant because when we compare it with the number of deaths over the last four weeks, these stand at 2%. So the number of cases are up 8% are up eight and the number of deaths are up at 2%. The reason this is significant is we are going into the holiday season and we see pockets of um, increases in, in infection. And so it is something that we need to put as part of our planning as we go into the holiday. And one key thing we need to do is vaccination against COVID-19. To date, we have received 1.064 billion doses 
of COVID-19 vaccines um, from uh, across uh, many sources. And we have administered 818, 818 million doses of um, uh, these vaccines, making it a 76.9% uh, rate of administration. Um, so we are consuming uh, what uh, we are receiving. You will also recall that um, for the last two weeks, we have been readjusting the way in which we look at um, uh, the vaccination rates on the continent and we took the decision to use target population because these are the individuals we intend to vaccinate the very young are therefore uh, not part of this um, uh, calculation that we are having and different countries on the continent are using slightly different um, uh, target uh, groups there are those who are doing 12 plus there are those who are doing 15 plus there are those who are doing 18 plus uh, in terms of a target population. So as Africa CDC, we are working on the averages of the target populations, and the situation on the continent today is as follows. Using target population as the denominator, Africa has fully vaccinated 44% of the target population. And I repeat, using the target population as the denominator, Africa has vaccinated 44% of this target population. The second important um, uh, result out of uh, the reanalysis is that 13, one, three member states have passed the 70% mark for target population. So 13, one, three of our member states using target population as a denominator, have actually passed the 70% mark. And these countries include uh, Mauritius, Seychelles, Rwanda, Comoros, Tanzania, Somalia, Liberia, Cape Verde, Morocco, Botswana, Mozambique, Zambia, and Sao Tome and uh, uh, Principe. Um, so, going forward, we will be giving you figures uh, which are relating to this target population. The message here is that we have been doing a lot of work in the background, including through our Saving Lives and Livelihoods uh, initiative, and the result is good. We are seeing very good progress with uh, the vaccination rates uh, that are actually uh, going up. Our Saving Lives and Livelihoods initiative continues. Um, we are working with uh, all welcome back and um looks like we're having some technical problem uh, from Addis Ababa Ethiopia we're listening to uh the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh briefing and uh it is discussing uh, many issues, uh, including uh, the rate of uh, vaccination on the African continent and uh, also discussing uh, other issues that are taking place on the uh, public health uh, front. And, of course, uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, this uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast for uh, Saturday, uh, December 10th, uh, 2022. 
and uh, we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios uh, in uh, downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for uh, tuning in uh, once again. Sorry, uh, colleagues, we're internet okay, uh, we're the technology, so we've just lost the director director's connection briefly. Uh, he's making efforts to rejoin us. Uh, okay, he's he's back. The director is back. Yes, um, there was an interruption in uh, um, the internet where I am. Um, yeah, so I was saying that um, when we look at the number of doses that the AVAT uh, mechanism has delivered on the continent, we currently stand at 121.6 million doses to 38 of our member states. And um, we also have delivered 732,000 doses to the Caribbean countries who we've been uh, supporting in accessing uh, these uh, COVID-19 vaccines during the height of the challenges we had with access uh, to uh, vaccines. So, um, in, in essence, um, the Saving Lives and Livelihood Initiative is doing very good work at country level supporting vaccination rollout and also uh, purchasing of the necessary um, uh, COVID-19 vaccines. Second, um, public health um, event of uh, concern is the Sudan strain of Ebola virus uh, in uh, Uganda. And uh, since the last brief, no new confirmed case, no new deaths have been reported in Uganda. Um, it has been nine days since the last confirmed case was reported. You recall we discussed a bit um, how this was a situation of um, a survivor um, uh, delivering um, uh, a feature, I mean, a baby that was um, uh, having um, the infection, and unfortunately, the baby lost um, its life. So it was a, a special situation uh, because the mother had actually uh, already undergone um, her uh, period for quarantine. But nevertheless, we, are, we count afresh, and it's nine days since the last confirmed case was reported. Um, and there is um, an indication that the community engagement strategies that we have put in place, supporting the government of Uganda, particularly in the areas that uh, uh, were epicenters, they are not only working, um, but they are giving us very concrete results uh, that we can be able to report even within a week or two. Those strategies are actually working. So from the beginning of this outbreak, we've seen that um, cumulatively we have reported 142 confirmed cases, 56 confirmed deaths uh, in nine districts in Uganda. Um, we um, are continuing to support the government in uh, community engagement so that we can truly bring um, this uh, Ebola outbreak uh, under full uh, control. Very good coordination from the, from the government of Uganda uh, internally and also with partners, and we are quite happy with uh, how it is proceeding. For the vaccine trials, um, the first doses have actually arrived in the country, and we are waiting for a schedule uh, to be shared by the Minister of how the clinical trials are going to be rolled out. Again, another very significant milestone 
um, that we are almost reaching um, uh, a product that we can confirm that is working at uh, the community level. So we're really looking forward to the results of these uh, clinical trials. The third is the multi-country monkeypox outbreak. Um, and um, when we look at um, the situation on the continent to date, since the last briefing, 42 new confirmed cases and no new deaths have been reported in Nigeria and Sudan. This is a 17.17% decrease in the number of new confirmed cases and a 100% decrease in the number of new deaths. So again, we are quite um, uh, encouraged by the, um, the evolving situation of monkeypox here on the continent. Cumulatively, from the beginning of this year, we have seen 1,089 confirmed cases, 202 deaths from mpox, um, and these have been reported from 13, one three of our member states. And this means that um, the continent has unfortunately lost one in every five confirmed cases of uh, monkeypox, which is um, um, uh, a concern, and we really need to bring this under control as soon as possible. However, of the 13 member states, three carry the largest burden, and that is DRC, Ghana, and Nigeria. The three countries account for 94% of all the confirmed cases for mpox are here on the continent. At Africa CDC, um, as I said last time, we received a donation um, from the Republic of Korea uh, for um, 50,000 doses of um, a second generation um, a smallpox vaccine, which is effective against monkeypox. And we are in discussion with uh, um, others to see if we can able to get more of those vaccines and we get our healthcare workers in the front line vaccinated and also the communities that are affected uh, to be also uh, be uh, vaccinated. So very, very good um, uh, point uh, to note that um, we are engaging others and there is willingness for this to be able to be shared. It has come a bit late, but um, really uh, this kind of sharing should be the norm at the beginning of any uh, outbreak so long as tools like vaccines, therapies, uh, and uh, diagnostics are available. The sharing should be early so that the numbers are kept in check. The fourth that I would like to share today is a multi-country cholera outbreak. And um, uh, on the 5th of December, His Excellency, the President of the Republic of Malawi, declared the ongoing cholera outbreak in Malawi as a public health emergency within the country. Um, we have um, uh, mobilized ourselves to provide um, key support uh, to that declaration, and we are working very closely with the Ministry of Health there uh, to um, deploy the required expertise and uh, um, uh, infrastructure that is uh, going to support um, control of the cholera outbreak in Malawi. Since the last brief, 488 new confirmed cases and 15 new deaths of cholera have been reported from Malawi itself. And um, over uh, the last four weeks, we have seen a 61.3% average increase in the number of new cases. So this is uh, truly a concern, and uh, we are going to work very closely.
Welcome back, and uh, we're listening to uh, a briefing uh, from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, from Addis Ababa, uh, Ethiopia. Uh, the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is an affiliate uh, of uh, the 55-member uh, state African Union. Uh, apologies for that. We've seen displaced individuals in countries also are contributing to the challenges of bringing cholera under control. Um, the final is the Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever in Uganda. Um, we have documented one new confirmed case and no new deaths from one district. And this is an increase or in the number of new cases uh, since the last time that we had a briefing, the increase by that one uh, uh, individual. So cumulatively, we have seen 20 cases, nine which have been confirmed, um, and um, we have seen three deaths uh, as a result of Crimean uh, Congo hemorrhagic fever, and uh, this gives us a case fatality rate of 20%. We have supported the government to activate uh, district task forces to coordinate response, and uh, surveillance has been enhanced um, at the community and in the health facility levels, and we are using the infrastructure we already have in place, including um, for uh, COVID-19 and now for Ebola, uh, and um, the knowledge that we are gathering during these uh, two other outbreaks in Uganda uh, to uh, support um, that very important um, uh, area of uh, controlling Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever as soon as is possible. Now, let me move then to the Conference of Public Health in Africa. We have um, only a few days remaining. In fact, um, tomorrow we start the youth pre-conference um, where we are bringing together the youth and the outcome uh, interest has been uh, fantastic. We are really looking forward to a very, very good meeting um, over the weekend. But when I look at, um, in general, the numbers of, for the Conference in Public Health in Africa, as I speak, we have 1,500 registrations that are completed, and another 2,000 are in the process. Um, so essentially, the number of people who have initiated registration stands at 3,500. Those that have completed are 1,500. We have, apart from the main session, 56, five, six um, side events which are in person in Kigali starting from tomorrow. We have 56 in person side events and we have 10 virtual side events. So it is a very, very well uh, subscribed um, uh, conference and we are encouraging those who have not yet uh, registered to register and be there in Kigali uh, or at least join virtually uh, so that you can be part of this very historic. Um, uh, uh, in-person conference uh, of public health here uh, on the continent. We are looking forward to um, having upwards of 50 dignitaries attending, ministers, um, heads of government, um, heads of institutions, um, and um, all this within the space of uh, three or so days. Uh, we are looking forward to a very, very good meeting. Um, our co-chairs, Professor Agnes Binaguaho of Rwanda and uh, Professor Senet Fisaha uh, of the Susan Thompson Buffett Foundation have done a fantastic job guiding this work, and uh, we are very proud 
uh, that uh, a fully African um, uh, meeting um, is actually now at uh, on the edge of um, achieving unprecedented success, um, uh, and uh, we are looking forward to sharing that not just with Africa but also with the world, because this is going to be a firm part of the annual calendar in public health. Uh, this conference of public health in Africa is going to be held annually around the end of the year uh, so that you can bring Africa together, we can bring public health experts together uh, in one country or the other uh, here on the continent of Africa. Um, finally, is um, to invite you as journalists, we are going to be having a lot of engagement with, uh, with journalists during the, uh, the, the, the conference itself. And um, we are looking forward to you joining us on um, uh, Monday for the pre-conference uh, um, uh, um, uh, briefing and uh, uh, daily briefing that we are going to be having. Uh, we are looking forward to you joining so that you are part of the conversation uh, that is happening uh, at the second International Conference for Public Health in Africa in Kigali uh, in Rwanda. Thank you very much and back to you, Nick. Thank you, Director. A rather succinct and uh, comprehensive update covering um, COVID-19, the EVD situation, cholera, and the rest of it. And just uh, closing on the CPHIA 2022, just set on the way. Start, it's beginning tomorrow uh, with the youth event. Uh, fast forward to Monday until Thursday next week. And we are hoping that this Section Our usual Thursday briefing is going to be the climax of the engagement with the media. As you heard the director starting from Monday, there will be a pre-conference briefing. And, of course, a climax of the conference briefing uh, in person with the director and other principals at the brief at the conference. So, colleagues, you're invited. There's going to be a means uh, to join digitally uh, while others are going to be there in person. Those of you who cannot make it, there's always a means that you can be able to be a part of this conversation as the director has said. So colleagues, we'll now move to the next session as usual of our briefing, which is the question and answer section where you interact with the director by sending through your questions and then he gives you the adequate response accordingly. So as usual, we've got three mains through which you can send your question. Uh, the regulars on this briefing already know that we use on the Zoom platform, we use the Q&A icon just at the bottom of your page. You just click there and write your questions. Remember, you have to indicate your institution, your name, and then the institution you work for. And then the second option on the Zoom platform is the raise hand icon. With that, once your internet connectivity is good, you can come directly. You can speak live on the platform. We'll give you that uh, right. The third option for those who cannot use the platform is our usual uh, WhatsApp number. That is plus 251. 9455023102310 let me read that again plus 2519455023310 just pick that number send your question through that and then we can be able to post that forward to the direction we are to the director we already have a first question in our Q&A let me pick that up quickly and this comes from our colleague Vera Okoye and Vera just speaks directly to the issue of COVID-19. As you mentioned, several countries that have had successes in uh, the issue of vaccinating their population. She says, what do you think the successful member countries did right to vaccinate their required population? That is the question from Vera. Over to you, Director. 
Um, thank you. Thank you, Vera. And um, of the different things that countries have done, three really stand out uh, to achieve the success. Uh, the first is uh, commitment at the leadership level. And I broaden it to leadership beyond political leadership because we know um, uh, other leaders in the private sector in, uh, uh, within the community have really been instrumental in um, uh, uh, the achievement of uh, uh, the 70% plus vaccination amongst the target population. So um, leadership has been very key. The political leaders, uh, technical leadership, uh, community leadership, private sector leadership, this has been very, very key in uh, getting them to 70%. Second is proper engagement with members of the public. Countries where um, um, you know, engagement with the public was consistent and um, very wide-reaching uh, uh, have been much more successful in getting uh, their vaccination rates uh, to be high. So engagement with the, with the public has been very, very key. Third is the sheer power of partnership. And here, our role as Africa CDC becomes very important. Um, because where countries have been open to um, uh, productive partnerships in uh, getting vaccines, in getting vaccination out, um, we have seen uh, the numbers uh, just rising. There are some countries that started late, but because of the very good partnerships that were built, um, we have seen the numbers just go up and the targets being reached within a very short period of time. So those three things, leadership at country level, um, uh, engagement with the public effectively, and then uh, a broad partnership that brings together all the players that contribute uh, to um, improve vaccination rates at country level. Thank you, Director. Uh, colleagues, apologies for the breaking in the, the internet connectivity there. Uh, we're obviously going to share with you the the recording of this uh, section so that you can be able to reference uh, in terms of the director's response to your questions. So I will just link that to uh, the question from our colleague, Elder Paul Reitard, who is with the, the East African correspondent for the National Public Radio in the U.S. Uh, Paul Reitard, I just want to point out uh, specific issues on the country, Tanzania. So he said, what can you say about Tanzania's response so far, holding to the fact that the country was slow in accepting the COVID, the facts about COVID-19 uh, early in 2021 and 20, 2021. Uh, no, thank you. Thank you, Pauletta. And um, uh, Tanzania is a, an example of um, a country where, um, although uh, vaccination started later than other countries, but those three things I described um, uh, confluenced together in a very, very productive way, and the numbers uh, rules uh, are quite uh, fast uh, looking at where uh, Tanzania was um, about a year or so uh, ago. So today, Tanzania is one of the countries that have achieved 70% of the target population. And we continue to work in Tanzania because there are pockets where the uh, the figures are still low and we are working with the government there providing support so that even those areas can be able to come up to at least 70%. And um, the same leadership um, that has been shown by the, the government there and the other leaders are still in play. Engagement with the public is very robust, and uh, uh, the partnerships that uh, we have built 
um, uh, within the country uh, are also providing the much-needed sustainable um, activities uh, to be able to get uh, even more people uh, vaccinated. So um, Tanzania have done very well. Um, although they started late, uh, they have uh, actually hit the target before the end of the year. Okay, so the questions are coming in segments, so we will keep on. Uh, there's one here from our colleague Benga Salute from the Guardian newspaper in Nigeria, just around, um, still around the issue of COVID. And he goes, he takes us back to the very early stages of COVID where there was a conversation around uh, the use of indigenous herbal medicine. So he's, he wants to know if Africa CDC can give any update in terms of uh, uh, regulations or uh, actions taken so far in terms of providing safety and efficacy for the use of indigenous herbal medicine in, in public health response in Africa. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks, Alou. And um, um, as Africa CDC, we are very supportive of indigenous uh, products um, for all types of uh, diseases that we suffer from here on the continent. We are very supportive. What we do require is let us make it scientific so that we know and confirm uh, the safety of these products and also the efficacy uh, of the products um, to uh, the specific disease entities that um, may um, benefit from uh, the indigenous uh, products. To date, um, what we are doing is we are working with the national uh, authorities Whenever a product has been brought to our attention, we work with the national authorities so that proper research is done, and um, um, we are supporting uh, those national efforts uh, to try and document um, the different indigenous um, products uh, that can be helpful in the COVID and any other um, illnesses that uh, we face uh, on the continent. So we really encourage indigenous products, and we are working with the member states and the regulatory authorities to ensure uh, that uh, a proper documentation is being done, good research um, uh, is being um, also done, and uh, we can comfortably then be able to say that a product actually works uh, or not. And this has been our um, uh, position, attitude, and um, uh, line of action since the beginning of, uh, of this pandemic. Thank you, Director. So there are two questions just around CPHIA. Uh, I will come to, to those questions like I spoke of the segmenting the question. So colleagues, just to remind you of uh, the, the medium through which you can send your question. First, you can use the, the Zoom platform, uh, the Q&A section. You can write in your question, indicate name and, of course, your institution. You can also use the raise hand icon if you want to come through live. And then, of course, our uh, WhatsApp number plus two five one nine four five five zero two three one zero. So before I come to the question questions related to CPHIA, let me take this question on impact from our colleague Kara uh, Annan from, of course, the Associated Press, one of our regular colleagues on this platform. So Kara said, thanks for the briefing on impact. What role, if any, is Gavi playing in helping to get more MPOS vaccines? to the African continent. No, thank you. Thank you for that. At the moment, we are not um, um, engaged with uh, Gavi since they do not have a stockpile of uh, 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 MPOX vaccines. We are dealing directly 
uh, with um, um, other member states that uh, have uh, stockpiles of uh, Mpox vaccines. Okay, so let's move now to the segment on uh, CPHIA. Uh, there are two questions in that segment. Let me start with the one from our colleague uh, Lucio Blanco. Uh, Blanco is nom- our colleague who normally joins from the from EFF, the Spanish, the International Spanish News Agency. She's based in uh, Nairobi. Uh, Lucio say many thanks for your time. Regarding the CPHIA, do you expect any major measures? or decisions to be taken? And secondly, do you already have the list of heads of state that will be attending the conference? Uh, thank you, Lucia. Uh, by and large, um, conferences are not places to make major decisions, um, but they are places for us to discuss major ideas. And these ideas are then going to be translated into recommendations, and those recommendations, we are going to take them up after the conference is completed. So the conference is not for making decisions, but it is for discussion of major ideas and uh, making recommendations, which we'll then be able to take forward. And there's a lot on the table uh, that needs to be discussed over uh, the three main days and offered over the additional two days of, uh, of uh, uh, side events. Uh, in terms of heads of states, um, we are in touch with at least uh, four uh, different uh, uh, presidencies, and uh, we expect representation. We expect heads of um, uh, uh, public health institutions, heads of philanthropies. Uh, so the, the agenda and um, the list of speakers is very rich, and I encourage you to be part of it, and you will be able to see which heads of states and which heads of institutions have actually um, uh, or come to give uh, their messages uh, at the conference. Okay, more information is on uh, on CPHI is obviously on the conference website. We can share that information with you uh, just before the briefing comes to an end. Uh, second question on CPHIA. Uh, this comes from our colleague David. David is from Radio Ten in Kigali. Uh, David, is, David is quite concerned about the economic side. He says, what are some benefits from your perspective uh, that ordinary citizens of Rwanda stands to get from the event being held in the country? No, thank you, David. There, there, are, there are a number of um, benefits to the ordinary Rwandan in the street. Um, first is the visibility of the country. We have thousands of people coming in in person, and we are going to have millions who are going to be engaged with uh, the conference from different aspects globally. So the visibility of the country is very good, not only for the country, but also to the Rwandan who is in the street. Second is the number of visitors who are coming are um, going to engage with different services. They will eat. Um, they will visit places. They will uh, use services uh, uh, that are being given by the uh, the Rwandan on the street. So um, economically, there is a boost there because we have so many visitors uh, that are coming. Third and last is the opportunity to network with uh, international um, uh, visitors. Um, uh, this is uh, very key because then it opens up possibility for future partnerships and work, not just for institutions, but also for the Rwandan uh, in the street. So we really encourage the Rwandan in the streets to feel part 
of uh, CPHIA and to support in every way that they can be able to do if they're in a position uh, to do that. And I'm looking forward um, to enjoying the streets um, of, uh, of Kigali as uh, uh, the conference days um, uh, evolve uh, from the weekend. Okay, just one question still on CPI is coming in our document here, and it says, you have been speaking of uh, Africa's new public health order has been uh, pushed by Africa's CDC. What role does CPHIA play in realizing this new call? Um, thank you. I didn't catch the name of the journalist. Um, but the new public health order and the conference are really closely interlinked. In fact, the conference is um, the result of implementation of the new public health order. And um, in two major ways. One is that um, under Pillar 5 of the new public health order, where we say um, we want partnerships that are action-oriented and based on African priorities, the conference is going to be discussing those priorities and uh, coming up with recommendations of what should be a priority on the continent. So it speaks directly to, to, to Pillar 5. Um, the action-oriented part, we had committed that we want to bring African uh, experts. We want to bring public health uh, experts from the rest of the world to discuss um, African challenges here on the continent. And as an action, we have actually delivered on that last year, virtually, and this year in person. So from two different aspects, uh, the Conference of Public Health in Africa is very closely linked uh, to the new public health order. If you look at the rest of the pillars, issues around strengthening institutions, issues around strengthening workforce, issues around local manufacturing, issues around domestic financing, they are all major topics that are going to be discussed at the conference, and we expect that the recommendations that will come out of all these sessions are going to strengthen the way in which we continue to implement uh, Africa's new public health order. Back to you, Nick. Welcome back. And we're listening to uh, the African Center. Um, Nick, can you hear me? Okay, uh, I can hear you directly. I think the last end of the sentence to implement uh, Africa's yeah, new public health order. So, colleagues, uh, I've sifted through our question um, menu here, and I don't see any new ones coming in. So, with just uh, under seven, eight minutes to go, we will do the usual and just uh, turn the platform over to uh, back to the director for his final key points, as usual, that he gives uh, headline points for the media to take away. And after that, I'll give you a few announcements on uh, CPHIA, and then we wrap up for today. So, director, back to you for your final key three headline points for today's briefing. Over. Yeah, thank you, Nick. So, today, um, the three things I would like to share first is um, the um, progress that we've made with COVID-19 vaccination. And um, really, this is a testimony to the ability of the continent to come together and deliver. 44% of target population, where we had very low rates at the beginning of the year, is an excellent, excellent uh, piece of news towards the end 
of uh, 2023. Uh, so we encourage all of you, go get vaccinated. Those that are eligible, get boosted so that we can be able to keep the com- continent uh, safer. So COVID. Second is Ebola outbreak in Uganda. As we do the countdown, we're on day nine. Um, we are very pleased with the way in which um, partners have come round to support um, the response in Uganda. We are very pleased with the way the Ministry of Health and the Government of Uganda have taken the leadership of ensuring that um, um, this particular outbreak is contained uh, quickly. And we are very pleased with the individual frontline health workers who have put their safety and risked um, uh, their well-being to be able to protect those of us who are not in the front line. Very proud of the work that they are doing, and um, we are looking forward to bringing this uh, uh, outbreak uh, under control. Finally, the conference. If you're not there in person, be there online. It is an event that you don't want to miss from the youth conference, uh, youth pre-conference tomorrow to the main conference when it starts to the side events. Be there in person. If you can't be there in person, be there online. Thank you. Back to you, Nick. And you're listening to the Patent African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast. And we've been listening to a briefing from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Uh, Nick, you got the three points, and I think you may have frozen briefly there. <laughs> okay, uh, thank, thank you, thank you, director. Oh, thank you, director. Uh, thanks to all of our colleagues who have joined today's section. Uh, very insightful questions, and of course, the responses adequately provided by the director. Just a quick one on CPIA, just around the media. Uh, so, as the director said from the beginning, we are going to have a pre-conference briefing just outlining what the week is going to look like, and that is scheduled for uh, Monday evening at 5 to 6 p.m. Rwanda time. Uh, It's going to be at the media center in the Kigali Conference Center. Uh, The director will be there in person. Our two co-chairs will be there, Professor Sanite and Professor Agnes. They're going to be there with the director. And, of course, the Honorable Minister of Health of Rwanda is going to join the three panelists. So those of you who will be present in Rwanda, that pre-conference briefing is going to be available at KCC. Just find us around the, the conference center, and we can give you further information. In addition to that, just look on the CPHIA website. Uh, on the Twitter page or the social media handlers, there are a lot of information for the media there, and you can contact us uh, as usual, and we can provide uh, additional information that you will need. With that, uh, we want to thank the director for being available, uh, considering the student uh, travel schedule he has to brief us today. And to all of you who have made it uh, your business to join today's briefing and get the information provided today, Thanks to our colleagues in the background, both at the African Union and, of course, at Africa CDC, doing everything to bring this briefing to us every week. Let's meet on Monday, this time, for the pre-conference briefing at CPHIA, and then on Thursday for the post-conference briefing, just to wrap up on everything. Thanks to everyone. Let's do this next week, and see you in Kigali next week. Bye-bye from us.
And uh, that was the conclusion of our briefing uh, from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for uh, Saturday, December 10th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Recording stopped. And uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week. Dock of the Bay shot to the top of the charts. It should have been Redding's moment in the spotlight. The only problem was he'd been dead for a month. They found him for several days later, uh, you know, frozen in that chair. Oh, God, Jesus. Um, it hurt everybody. It, it hurt me. On this episode of Mysteries and Scandals, we'll hear from the only survivor of Redding's fatal crash. The coroner said, I, I was very lucky, right? I said, why? She said, everybody's dead. It's like, this couldn't be. This man was in his 20s. He was not a, an old man. We'll take a look at Redding's meteoric rise to superstardom, and we'll see how his tragic death affected his fellow musicians. 
It was like I'd lost a member of my family. And an inspiration that I really looked to for values. If I'm a legend, Otis is a legend. If Otis not a legend, I'm not a legend. I call him the Thunderbolt of the South. The Thunderbolt. I'm A.J. Benja. Join me as we take a look at Otis Redding, the king of soul, who in a flash set the world on fire. Otis Redding was born in Dawson, Georgia on September 9, 1941. It wasn't a bad place to drop into the world. According to R&B expert David Nathan, the kid was in good company. A lot of the greatest performers came from the South. Um, Little Richard, James Brown, and of course Otis Redding. Otis Redding Jr. was one of six children of Pastor and Mrs. Otis Redding Sr. In 1953, the family moved from Dawson to Macon, Georgia. It was there that Otis Jr. honed his skills in gospel music fellow Georgian Little Richard is the architect of rock and roll. I came out of the church. That's where I came from. And that's where Otis came from. That's where any real singer, their background is church. The only resolution, the only prescription was the gospel. And if you could stand in front of a congregation that knew what singing was like and you could really bowl them over, then people would pay attention. Boy, did they ever. Otis won singing contests left and right. Famed guitarist Steve Cropper was one of Redding's earliest collaborators. Very few people in my life that I ever met had that quality, one of them being Elvis Presley. When they walked into a room, all heads turned, and Otis was that dynamic. He was that kind of guy. And when he was on stage, he was just bigger than life. Otis had a gift that he wanted to share with the world. In 1954, while still a teenager, Redding got caught up in the rock and roll craze. Otis was like major fan of two guys. One was Sam Cooke, and the other was Little Richard. John Landau is a former music critic for Rolling Stone magazine. Otis was uh, tremendously influenced by Little Richard, and some of his early albums and early singing was a perfect, perfect uh, dead-on uh, imitation of Little Richard. Otis came in, and I was his idol. He, he didn't want to look like me, thank God but he wanted to sound like me. Guess what? Pastor Otis Sr. wasn't thrilled about his son's passion for secular music, but Otis worshipped at the altar of R&B, and Memphis was the promised land. So for a lot of, uh, of, of people who grew up in gospel, making that transition was not an easy thing to do. When Otis was 14, a family friend gave him a chance to perform in a local dive for 15 bucks. After bowling over the audience, Otis asked for a raise, and he got it. Redding was always smart about money. Ben Cauley was a member of the Barcade. Otis was a great businessman, and he was on top of his show, and I dug that. He was not just a great singer and a songwriter. He really was a businessman. Otis had the charisma, the guts, and the brains for music, and at 15, the six-foot-tall singer was already making waves. Otis Redding is one of the most dynamic entertainers ever lived. And he is an innovator within himself. Otis Redding's uh, 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 from my hometown, uh, 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 I call him the Thunderbolt of the South. The Thunderbolt. When you were watching Otis Redding's concert, you would feel like the songs would end, 
but Otis would just keep going. You know, he was in he was in motion the entire time. He was he had your attention the entire time. One night in 1956, Otis had a gig at the Douglas Theater in Macon, Georgia. Redding so impressed popular guitarist Johnny Jenkins that Otis became Jenkins' backup singer. Soon, Otis also had a manager. Phil Walden was Otis's manager, and he was in Macon, Georgia. He was white, you know, so it was a. Uh, it was a, a, an odd pairing, you know, down in the South in the 60s. Phil loved that black music. In fact, Phil was very close to black people. I believe Phil Walton really loved Otis. I believe he loved him from the bottom of his heart. Otis had another fan. Zelma Atwood used to watch Otis perform. It was love at first sight. Otis and Zelma were married in 1958. The lovebirds were barely 17. But the real honeymoon started in 1962 with the Stax Vault Recording Studio in Memphis. When Otis Redding first got to Stax, it was already a burgeoning record, recording operation. It wasn't a new operation. They'd already had success with Booker T and the MGs, the Marquis, Carla Thomas, Rufus Thomas. I saw them come in, and I saw Otis, this big guy, was, had driven the car and parked it and was getting equipment out of it. And that's kind of the way I remember it. Otis had never been inside a recording studio, but he knew how to open the door when opportunity knocked. We were there to do a session with uh, Johnny Jenkins to do a follow-up record uh, to the song called Love Twist that he had a hit on. Al Jackson, the drummer, came to me and he said, uh, the guy that's up here with uh, Johnny Jenkins, he's a singer, and he, if you have time, he'd like for you to hear him sing. His recording was kind of like a, a last-minute thing. There was some time left over, and I guess he appealed to whoever to please let him sing. And I said, fine, and uh, I think we were going to key a B-flat or something like that, and I started playing it, and he starts singing These Arms of Mine, and we just all fell on the floor. I mean, this voice was just... Bigger than life. I mean, it was amazing. It was a momentous occasion. Unfortunately, time was running out for Otis Redding. Just ahead, Otis goes head-to-head -head with Elvis and shadows a record. And later, a frozen lake becomes an icy grave. By 1962, Otis Redding was out of church music and was an active preacher of soul. But this 22-year-old was still a stranger to recording studios until he had a session at Stax Vault Records in Memphis. Suddenly, everyone saw the light, including famed musician Steve Cropper and Stax bigwig Jim Stewart. They thought they died and gone to heaven. We hollered for Jim Stewart, you know, president of the company and the engineer and all that, and said, Jim, you got to come and hear this guy sing, you know. So we brought him down there and he started singing, and Jim says, man, he said, let's put that on tape. A lot of performers are not able to put on tape their real, their, the, the essence of their emotion, and he really did that, and you got what he felt. The other musicians were packed up and ready for happy hour when Steve Cropper caught up with them. I remember the bass player, uh, Louis Steinberg, uh, was loading his car, and we went running out <laughs> and grabbed him and said, get your bass and get back in here. We're going to cut another track. As Otis sang These Arms of Mine, everyone in the studio was blown away. I mean, this man sang like he meant it. So anyway, we did it. We cut These Arms of Mine. Everybody, we just listened to it and thought it was fantastic. Jim Stewart of Stax Vault offered Redding a recording contract. Otis walked in on a lark and walked out with a label. Within eight months, Otis had a regional number one song with These Arms of Mine. He began um, when you hear something like Mr. Pitiful and These Arms of Mine. Uh, he began in, as a, somebody, uh, you know, sort of observing the uh, conventions. Of, uh, of, a, of an ongoing style and tradition. And, you know, uh, his very first recorded music does not uh, really tell you where he is fully going to get to. 
What it was that people loved about Otis Redding when they first heard him was the real, there was a gut-wrenching intensity in his voice. Now all Otis needed was the right material, so we hooked up with guitarist Steve Cropper. The way that Otis and I uh, collaborated, Otis knew that I, you know, wrote songs. A lot of times I would write bridges to the ideas that he had, his intros and stuff like that, and we just kind of came about it naturally. So there was obviously a real rapport that was created there, a real creative response between the two of them that made some of those records sound really incredible. In 1965, Otis Redding began a series of tours, the most successful of which landed him in Europe. When Otis Redding hit the stage, the place went berserk. I wouldn't be surprised if, Otis, if, if the Rolling Stones were in the audience, the Who, the Moody Blues. I mean, you know, Otis Redding was like the man. The Beatles wanted to meet him. Tom Jones wanted to meet him. I mean, all of these great European superstars wanted to meet Otis Reddy. I mean, he was like a god. And so we were all kind of taken by that, because we didn't know. I mean, we've been in the studio for <laughs> how many years? Seven years, basically. Uh, and so we were really unaware of how popular we were and how big Otis was. By 1967, the British pop magazine Melody Maker called Otis Redding the number one male singer in the world. It was a spot held for almost a decade by Elvis Presley. It was quite phenomenal when Melody Maker actually did a poll and for Elvis, I don't know how many years, had been the top entertainer in, <laughs> in Europe, and there Otis Redding beat him out, which was just amazing. He was a, a, a boundary pusher from day one. He was not going to let anybody put him in a box and just say, you're only doing this, you can only do that. He was, he was just going to be all over the place. Nice guys finished last? I don't think so. A faithful husband, an inspirational performer, the guy had almost everything he wanted, but a horrible fate was waiting just around the corner. and his groundbreaking album, Dictionary of Soul. But in America, Redding wasn't as popular as he was in Europe, and Otis was determined to change that. He was pushing the boundaries. He just instinctively, he wanted everything. Even though he had that kind of artistic and personal ambition where he was going after everything. Redding's big break came in 1967 with the Monterey Pop Festival. Former member of the Mamas and the Papas, John Phillips, was the festival organizer. I wanted Otis Redding the act. The first person I tried to get in touch with. I would imagine that it would have been something he approached with some trepidation. It's like, well, how are these people going to respond to my music? Because his music really did appeal basically to a black audience. So I called Phil Walden and he said, well, Otis hasn't worked before many audiences that are maybe 98% white, you know, or 99, 44, 100% white. I said, oh, they're ready for it. I said, yeah, everyone loves Otis's work out here. And he said, uh, they weren't really aware of the influence that the first, those first albums had had on the West Coast. You know, they didn't really understand how big Otis was. On June 15, 1967, 25-year-old Otis Redding began the most dramatic chapter in his life when he arrived in California for the Monterey Pop Festival. The crowd was phenomenal. One of the impressive things was that it started raining. And here, these kids and audience people, they sat out there in the rain and waited. I didn't see one person heading for the sidelines or whatever. If we went on stage and proceeded just to mow the audience down, just kill them. And this was a big concert thing in front of a white audience and uh, the odds weren't really on his side that he'd be able to really get up there and do that. But you'd think he'd done it all of his life. They wanted to see Otis Redding and they were ready for that evening. And uh, it, it was just so well received. I mean, they went crazy when we went out and started playing. 
In fact, the audience went so crazy, someone warned John Phillips that the show might be shut down. Because the chief of police and the fire chief think there's going to be a, some kind of a, a riot here or something. I said, Otis, we got a problem. We have to get everybody back in their chairs again. He said, why? I thought that was the idea. Get them up. <laughs> I said, yeah, but, you know, we got this uh, town of Monterey, and they're going to pull the plug on the electricity if we don't get everything down again. So he said, okay, I can take care of that. We'd like to take time now and drop the tempo one more time. This is the love crowd, right? We all love each other, don't we? Am I right? Let me hear you say yeah, man. All right. Otis calmed the crowd and turned a potential riot into a revolution. Soul had suddenly gone mainstream. He gave a really amazing performance. I mean, he just gave everything he had. We finished our show the way we wanted to and did our encore and all that and got off and everybody went crazy. And uh, I talked to Phil later and I said, that was just so incredible, Phil. Phil says, John, he does that every night. I think that it may have been a turning point internally for Otis, you know, to have gotten the response that he ultimately got there. That November, Otis took a break in a houseboat in Sausalito. The area was filled with hippies who, according to Otis, seemed to sit on the dock and do nothing. Otis turned the observation into music. He said, you've got to hear the song. And he just played, all he had was that kind of little intro and the first verse, basically. And within about 20 or 30 minutes, I mean, I just knew that this was it. You know, it was a great song. With the help of Steve Cropper, Otis wrapped up writing and recording Sitting on the Dock of the Bay late one December night in 1967. We had already kind of had a Dock of the Bay in the can, but it was unfinished. We, Otis and I had listened to it. We knew we had a great song. We just knew it. We knew that was a hit. We knew we finally had the song that was going to cross him over to the pop market. We just knew it. Like any great artist, Otis Redding began by coming out of a very concrete tradition. But he very quickly got his own wings, you know, and he was just flying into his own zone. Otis was flying all right. Three days later on a twin-engine Beechcraft heading for his last destination. When we come back, what caused the fatal crash? and Redding's final moments as told by the lone survivor. Is one issue. So we brought soul music to a pop audience and they loved it. His endless touring was finally paying off. Now I know he didn't like traveling on the bus, on the road and so forth. Otis had enough success and enough money from touring and so forth that he was able to buy a plane. But on December 10th, 1967, while Otis and his band were about to fly from Cleveland, Ohio to Madison, Wisconsin for a performance, there was a problem with one of the plane's engines. On top of that, there was some pretty heavy fog. But according to band member and fellow passenger Ben Cauley, Otis couldn't let his fans down. The Otis said, well, I've never missed a job yet. You know, I'm about to let well stop me down. Otis, his band, a valet, and a pilot took off from Cleveland. We were headed to Madison, Wisconsin. We left it early that morning. I guess about five to six minutes. As the plane neared Wisconsin, the fog grew thicker. While we were flying, I realized something was wrong because all of a sudden the plane stopped shaking. And I knew something was happening. I got up and looked at the window. What he saw, I, I don't know, but he said, oh, no. They had trouble seeing the runway on the first pass. Very, very foggy. The pilot did not know how wide to go or how high to go, and the, the plane wing tipped this radio tower. The plane crashed in Lake Monoma in Wisconsin, just short of the runway. And Ben Colley remembers, the next thing he knows, he's out in the icy water. 
and uh, he, he heard the other guys hollering for help. I mean, everybody basically, as far as we know, was still alive at the time. He cussed that if came up to me, I grabbed it and held it to it. Only Ben Cawley managed to escape the sinking aircraft. There were some fishermen that heard the noises and heard the people calling in the fog, and they were able to get to Ben. And one of the fellows there uh, pulled me out the water. I couldn't say a word. I stopped and I tried to talk. I could. First time I ever experienced that. Uh, the at that moment I got a chill. They tried to get to some of the other voices and just it was just so fogged in they couldn't see and didn't know. And of course it was so cold that the guys went pretty quick, I would imagine. The corner, so I, I was very lucky, right? I said, Why? He said everybody's dead. And at that moment, I, I couldn't talk. Now, all that long, I, I had tears in my eyes crying. There were so many people that wanted to read into his death um, some sort of conspiracy about, you know, him getting knocked off, that somebody had tampered with the plane, and this, that, that sort of thing. And as far as we can tell, it, it was just a, a natural thing that happened. It was just an accident. It was basically bad weather. It was not a pilot error. It, was an, it wasn't anything. I was in England at the time that Otis Redding died. When, when we heard the news, it was devastating. This man was in his 20s. It was like, how could this be that we would lose someone who was really considered the king of soul at that time? It hurt everybody. It, it hurt me um, because it's scary, you know, uh, to think about a person knew you going down. It was just so depressing. I mean, I felt like a brother to Otis, and um, uh, that's the way I felt when he died. I, it was like I'd lost a member of my family uh, and an inspiration that I really looked to. I looked, looked to for inspiration or, you know, uh, values and all types of things. Otis left behind friends, loved ones, and an unfinished recording. Doc of the Bay was sitting in a Memphis studio waiting to be heard. It was probably one of the hardest things I ever had to do, uh, is mix that record. The tough part was that they hadn't even found Otis yet. And there I am working on a song, sitting on the Dock of the Bay. Uh, very difficult. That's it. The body of Otis Redding was discovered a few days after the crash. He died at 26 years old and was laid to rest in his native Georgia. We lost one of our legendary performers just as they finally received um, mainstream recognition throughout the world. So I wonder myself what his legacy will be. Uh, I don't know if everyone gets from Otis what I get from him, the feeling that we lost what was going to be the next ambassador of goodwill. He just represented everybody. He didn't just represent the black community or black soul and that. He was Otis Redding, you know. He was just bigger than life. And we all looked up to Otis. I would say he's a great cat, man. God knows what's best. I miss him every day. He's a great human being, great songwriter, great entertainer, a great father, a great teacher, preacher. He is a legend. In January 1968, barely a month after Otis Redding's fatal plane crash, Dock of the Bay was released and went straight to number one on both R&B and pop charts. But the man who helped soul go mainstream never got to feel the power of his influence. Life goes on, but the world of music will never fully recover. 
I'm A.J. Benza. Join me the next time as we chart the tragic tales of melody makers and heartbreakers on Mysteries and Scandals. Welcome back, and uh, that was a uh, audio file on the 55th anniversary of the untimely death of uh, soul rhythm and blues legend Otis Redding, and this is the music of Otis Redding. Please, let me sit down beside you. I've got something to tell you You should know I just couldn't wait For not another day I love you More than words can ever say Honey, Without you, it's okay. Uh, here on this uh, 55th anniversary of the 
death of uh, Otis Redding in 1967. And uh, right now, we want to go to our concluding segment uh, from uh, Talk Africa, uh, a segment on uh, corruption on the African continent and the source of it. Uh, let's listen in. China Global Television Network. The fight against corruption in Africa has mixed outcomes. Some good news and some not so good news. In other words, to say, as has often been said in some quarters, that all of Africa is corrupt is incorrect and misleading, according to the 2021 Global Corruption Perception Index. The CPI ranks the Seychelles, Botswana, Mauritius, Rwanda and Namibia as Africa's top performers in the fight against corruption. But South Sudan, Somalia and the Democratic Republic of Congo, Burundi and Equatorial Guinea appear to be struggling, according to the CPI. So why are some countries doing well in Africa and others struggling? That is the question we seek to answer in this week's program. I'm Beatriz Marshall. Welcome to Talk Africa. Well, let's now bring in our panel of guests, all joining us via Zoom. Joining in from Kigali, Apollinaire Mupigani, Executive Director, Transparency International Rwanda. And in Cape Town, Daniel Van Dalen, Senior Analyst at Signal Risk. A very warm welcome to you both, gentlemen, and thank you for being a part of this discussion. Apollinaire, if I may start off with you now, the 2021 Corruption Perceptions Index indicates that efforts to fight corruption are at a standstill worldwide and that 131 countries and territories have made no significant progress against corruption over the last decade. Now, African countries in particular are ranked among the most poorly performing in the corruption index. Why is this the case? First of all, uh, yes, uh, corruption uh, remains uh, one of the main challenges or main issues affecting equitable access to, to growth. And of course, when we talk about corruption, Africa is more affected, but no country worldwide is immune of corruption. But the African countries are sharing or have this, uh, some, uh, the, the, the same challenges, the governance challenges. In Africa, monopoly and state capture are common in many, many countries. Uh, furthermore, uh, Africa countries, those are ranking as more prone to more uh, prone to corruption have uh, the same issues insecurity uh, armed group and other uh, threats that contribute to corruption to flourish so it's it's a combination of factors that are our continent is facing in more specifically in those countries that are more prone to corruption uh, are, are facing which make corruption easy to, to, to happen. So this is probably uh, the, the, the difference to uh, other democracies that are uh, performing well uh, in Corruption Perception Index uh, as per Transparency International uh, Ranking. 
Daniel, I wanted to put that to Daniel as well. Why is this the case? Um, you know, I think over, you know, in the entire world, corruption is effectively, you know, there, it's prevalent. Um, you know, and we also have a lot of blame that gets put on the African continent while we're all, everyone's corrupt, all of that kind of thing. But I think in terms of corruption, I, you, one should almost look at the development of a country and a continent. You know, Africa is, you know, post-colonial era, you know, institutions, governments, nation buildings have only had, you know, less than, you know, from the 60s to develop institutions, political systems. Um, you know, all these processes take hundreds of years to unfold in other countries, um, you know, and now as countries have to kind of steer and navigate these things, building on institutions that weren't, you know, necessarily geared towards the entire population, um, you know, it takes time to build these institutions up. I'm not obviously excusing, you know, um, the leaders that took over and then we do know that some countries are far worse than others. Um, but I think it just takes time in terms of to configure a country and through that development process, there's going to be issues along the way, um, you know, and I think, yes, if we, you know, corruption perception index is the, you know, perception is the main thing there, is that on the continent, it will obviously look like there is far more corruption than elsewhere. But because of how, you know, the continent has developed, it's going to look a lot worse because of obviously the impact that that has, um, you know, especially on economies of, you know, the size and in developments and that kind of thing. Apollinaire, when we look at uh, the varied uh, response to the African continent out there, how accurate is the corruption perception index? How objective is it? And what criteria exactly is used to determine the levels and the extent of corruption? At least Transparency International, who is the custodian of this uh, uh, squaring, who developed for the first time this uh, uh, index, uses uh, other source of data uh, for a country to be ranked under a corruption perception index, it requires at least a three sources of data. Among other sources of, of uh, information, uh, Transparency International uses, for example, Africa Development Bank uh, governance data, uh, the World Economic Forum, uh, the World Bank data, uh, Batemis Foundation uh, index, uh, to name but the few, uh, meaning that it's, uh, it's not really the perception, of course, it, it requires, as the data are collected by the expert and the investors uh, uh, knowing or having information on the governance on a specific country. I think uh, the CPI provides the broad picture on the level of corruption in a specific country which is ranked under the, uh, the CPI scoring. But again, just to conclude, mm -hmm. uh, it's, uh, it goes through a very robust uh, quality assurance process, uh, and uh, the, the, the errors are, are somehow contained through a very robust statistical uh, approaches used by, by the Transparency International researchers. What are the implications, though, for those countries and territories that are listed negatively in the report? Does it have a deterrent effect? the impact or the consequence of corruption on their life of citizens is very, very high. And security, this is uh, one of the implications due to corruption. Let's give you an example. In a country where corruption is, uh, is, is, is endemic, uh, it's very easy uh, illegal uh, arm uh, businesses. And uh, this is uh, uh, scaling up the, the, the security. But more importantly, for economic growth, 
corruption discourages the investors. Uh, we have seen that investors are looking where uh, the, the doing business or, or competition is, is fair. In the countries where corruption is, is endemic, no uh, investor will be uh, motivated to go to invest. Uh, but of course, the day life of the ordinary citizens are, is affected. Only the powerholders are benefiting uh, uh, disproportionately compared to the ordinary citizens who, are, who can't afford the cost of corruption. So I think it's a, it's a very bad situation uh, in terms of equal opportunity for all citizens, but uh, as well as the economic growth is uh, jeopardized because there is no investment, no trust in the governance system in such specific countries. Daniel, do you feel that this is an accurate assessment of uh, the corruption index on the continent, though? Yeah, listen, um, you know, my, my opinion earlier, I think, is more of a general opinion of what the West maybe has on Africa. But in terms of the CPI, obviously, as um, Polina said, they are using country-level people. They're using external sources, things like the African Development Bank. So in my opinion, it's a fair assessment if you look at the methodology that, you know, Transparency International uses. Um, but like I said, to bring it back to my previous point, unfortunately, because the continent is still going through the stage of development, um, you know, there are going to be issues along the way in terms of how governance is developed, you know. Um, and I think as a continent, we're getting there. And, you know, you see a lot of countries moving up the ranks over the top, past couple of years as well. Um, you know, so I think as a whole, the CPI is a very accurate representation. Um, but like I said, I think it just in terms of where Africa, a lot of African countries stand is because of obviously where they've had to come from in such a short amount of time in terms of their development and, you know, political institutions and all those things. Apollinaire, the UN Conference on Trade and Development estimates that Africa loses about 88.6 billion U.S. dollars or 3.7% of its GDP annually in illicit financial flows. Quantify for us the actual cost of corruption to the continent. What is the magnitude and at what level? Is it largely petty or grand corruption? It's uh, very difficult to estimate the, the loss the cost of corruption or the lose, what Africa is losing uh, on an annual basis uh, due to uh, corruption. Illicit financial flows is uh, one of the one of the form of uh, uh, or one of the consequence of, of, of corruption, especially the money laundering and other forms of, of, of corruption. But what is very very clear is that Africa is losing huge huge uh, resources in monetary resources and the natural resources due to, uh, to corruption. And uh, at the same time, we, we are uh, bargaining or we are begging uh, developed partners to support us while the resources are somehow uh, taken abroad. So I think there is a kind of contradiction on uh, Africa uh, aspiration for its development. I think we need, our leaders need to take strong action against uh, corruption. Uh, as Daniel mentioned, we are seeing some countries really taking corruption as, uh, as, uh, as a threat. Uh, the example that I can uh, share is uh, for my country, Rwanda. In 2012, Rwanda was among the, the, the corrupt, uh, uh, before 2012, Rwanda was ranked among the very high corrupt countries. And the 10 years after, uh, we are seeing Rwanda among the five least corrupt countries. So I think it's very, it's fighting corruption. 
stop illicit financial flow due corruption, be it internally and externally, because illicit financial flows can, can, can take place national, uh, national level, regional level, and, and uh, global level. So I think it's possible when there is a political will and a strong institution, and of course anti-corruption machinery very well uh, integrated and coordinated. Daniel, you've talked about Africa looking uh, more corrupt because it is still going through stages of development, but what loopholes do you find are existing that are being exploited in order for uh, corruption to flourish? Under what circumstances exactly do we see the various levels and stages of corruption emerging? Yeah, I think it comes down to institutional, you know, frameworks that just don't exist in a lot of these countries. And, you know, in the post-colonial era, a lot of these guys were still trying to figure it out, obviously, in the same way that opened it up for a lot of, um, there was not a lot of oversight. Um, you know, in a place, for example, like the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, their anti-money laundering framework didn't exist. Um, you know, so the Financial Action Task Force recently approached them and, you know, got the review and they said, well, you guys now need to develop this framework. Um, you know, to counter, you know, money laundering, for example. And there's a lot of countries that don't have legislation that curtails acts of corruption. There's lack of oversight in certain places. Um, again, I'm not saying this is everywhere, and it is, you know, one should take a country dependent, um, you know, but I think it comes down to political will, and are you willing to, you know, create, you know, a state that is capable of trying to root it out? And I think that takes time with political will. Um, you know, and I don't think that political will has been there, but we are starting to, at least in my opinion, starting to see that tide change with new leaders coming in, you know, over the past couple of years where that political will is starting to change. You're seeing new legislation come in. You're seeing, you know, um, shakeups to, you know, countries that we historically perceived as, you know, highly corrupt. They still are corrupt, but, you know, the, the legislation is being passed. You know, departments are being created to start to alter that as time goes on. All right, well, on that note, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we will delve deeper into Africa's fight against the scourge of corruption, focusing more on solutions. Stay with us. Welcome back to the program. Let's continue with our discussion. Still with us in Kigali, Apollinaire Mopigani, and in Cape Town, South Africa, Daniel Van Dalen. Daniel, a very interesting notions have been brought up as to exactly uh, what causes and what is driving corruption. There's often a notion that poor pay in the public service is fueling the need for corruption. Do higher wages for bureaucrats, for instance, reduce corruption? Can competition or competitive business practices also reduce corruption? What is it? In Tanzania, for example, corruption, um, you know, under under John Magufuli within the police force, was was quite extensive, and you know, President Hassan has now come in and she's done exactly what you just described, where you know we're trying to, where you know Tanzania is now trying to curtail corruption within the police force by adding, you know, higher ups get a better salary, um, you know, the officers get a better salary. However, you know, you can't just do that in itself. Um, so I think it's the case of 
maybe add a bit more incentives, but you also then need to refine the institution that, you know, um, a culture within a body as well. I don't think it's as easy as just saying, we're going to give them higher salaries, so they're not going to do, you know, go into corruption. I mean, in South Africa, we have ministers earning salaries that, you know, most people in the, you know, in the country can only dream of, but they're engaging in grand acts of corruption, you know, irrespective of salary. So I don't think it's as easy as that. I think it is um, very much a culture, uh, not a cultural, it, well, I suppose an internal cultural thing of, you know, a culture of government or a culture of institution. And can you root that out as well as, you know, um, coincide that with obviously giving people better pay and that kind of stuff. So you're less tempted, but I don't think it's as easy as just creating more competition or, um, merely just adding a higher salary. Well, but Daniel, you know, you also talked about the political will, and without political will, the fight against corruption is largely doomed. So when you look across the board, though, is there a real political will? And what are some of the challenges faced in trying to overcome corruption, both at a political and institutional level? You need widespread reforms, you need institutional reforms, and you need that to come from the top and say, this is what we're going to do, this is what we're going to fix. Um, so, yeah, that, you know, it doesn't just happen overnight. Um, and I think, you know, this goes, goes back to the earlier point of this is where the leadership change in Africa and, you know, any country that is corrupt, that needs to happen first before, you know, you're going to see the cogs turn before these processes start coming in. Um, you know, and even then, new leader comes in, as I referred to earlier, they then have to then still consolidate it and change the culture within the institution before they can start doing that. Um, a prime example would be President Hassan in Tanzania. You know, she came in, there was a lot of infighting within the ruling CCM about how this was going to go, you know, and Hassan has chosen to reform, you know, the politics, the economy, but it took time, but she focused on changing the culture, you know, within the systems that exist already and then doing everything to incentivize it, you know, and putting in legislation, doing that. Same with the Democratic Republic of Congo, you know, it took time for Felix Tshisekedi to, you know, consolidate their control, root out Kabila's allies, and then he could say, well, we're going to now start putting forward legislation that's going to slowly but surely correct the system. Um, and, you know, to conclude, that brings it back to the, the penultimate point of you right. need the political will at the top to spearhead these, otherwise it doesn't happen. Apollinaire, what's your view? Because Rwanda has undergone this process and come up, come up with favorable uh, results. What were some of the challenges Rwanda had to overcome, both at a political and institutional level? Here in Rwanda, those who are in position of, of, of power or governance, they, are, they, are, they know that they are there to serve the citizens. Otherwise, uh, if there is any suspicion, any, uh, any uh, report on them, they are immediately dismissed. So one of the things that is very important is uh, uh, not tolerating impunity. Impunity is one of the, the, the things that uh, increase the, the level of corruption. The other thing is... And welcome back. And that was a report uh, from uh, CGTN on uh, corruption and how to solve the problem of corruption on the African continent. That's going to conclude uh, our program uh, for today. And uh, today is Saturday, December 10th, uh, 2022. We've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And if you'd like to have access to uh, this edition of the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast, 
Just go to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, if you'd like to uh, read uh, the Pan-African Newswire, uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do is go uh, to our website, and uh, that is at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, we're going to be closing out uh, with uh, the music of jazz guitarist Grant Green, uh, the Grant Green Trio. Uh, this is from an album entitled Iron City from 1967. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
Lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.